And once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 8. And if you're new with us, it's good to see you this morning. We are working our way through the book of 2 Samuel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Now, let me just say this. I'm going to combine chapters 8 and 9 together. We will not get through both of them today. Uh, but I want you to understand that in 2 Samuel chapters 8 and 9, we see two sides of David's personality presented. In chapter 8, we see David as a conqueror, someone who judges and destroys his enemies. But then in chapter 9, we see a softer side of David, a king who demonstrates great mercy and kindness to someone who doesn't deserve it. And just so you know where I'm going with this, guys, David, of course, is a type of Jesus Christ who also judges and destroys his enemies while showing great mercy and kindness to those who don't deserve it, but with whom he has made a covenant. So our first point today will be the king mighty in battle against his enemies. And we'll look at our second main point next week. But the king mighty in battle against his enemies, first of all, looking at King David in chapter 8. Now, 2 Samuel 8 summarizes the victories that God gave to David over his enemies all around him. And so in verse 1, we see how that uh, David uh, took on the Philistines who were to the west of Jerusalem and conquered them. In verse 2, it talks about the Moabites who were to the east. Uh, then it talks about the Syrians who were to the north. And then uh, in verses 13 and 14, it finally talks about how David defeated the Edomites who were to the south. So let's look at these briefly. First of all, the Philistines, verse 1. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and, and subdued them. And David took Methagama from the hand of the Philistines. Now, Methagama is another name for Gath. We get that from 1 Chronicles 18, verse 1. The parallel passage, Gath was one of the five major cities of the Philistines. They had five capital cities. Gath was one of them. And by the way, uh, Goliath had come from Gath. You're familiar with that big guy. But uh, here's the deal. When Saul was king, the Philistines became stronger and stronger by conquering more and more territory from Israel. You know, Saul was a feckless king. And as such, the enemies of God's people didn't fear him. In fact, he was kind of... Uh, paralyzed by indecision and we'd often see him you know in the philistines that had camped to do battle he'd be under a tree somewhere not knowing what to do okay uh but that all changed when david became king under his leadership god's people began to take territory back from the enemy uh the moabites verse two then he defeated moab forcing them down to the ground he measured them off with a line with two lines he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. Uh, actually, the Jewish people were related to the Moabites. Moab was one of the two sons of Lot, Lot being the nephew of Abraham. Uh, but even more to the point, David himself was related to the people of Moab through his great-grandmother, Ruth, who was a Moabitess. And you can trace the lineage from Ruth and Boaz down to David at the end of um, the book of Ruth, chapter 4. At the end of the chapter, you see it gives the genealogy down to David. However, even though they were related, the Moabites hated the Jewish people. 
and were the perennial enemies of Israel. And so David, no doubt led by the Lord, became an instrument of God's judgment, and he kills two-thirds of the soldiers of Moab, keeps a third alive, puts the whole nation under tribute. They were now taxed by David, or had to pay taxes to Israel, and uh, subjugated to David, and really now David was ruling over them, the people of Moab. Uh, That brings us to the Syrians, who lived in the north. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the Euphrates River. Now, uh, Hadadezer, we learn, was a king of Zobah. Zobah was a, uh, a small mountainous Syrian kingdom just to the north of Damascus, uh, whose people were also called Arameans, Arameans. It says that he went to recover his territory, this character named Hadadezer. Uh, the Hebrew is literally uh, to turn his hand against or in other words, to establish his dominion. Uh, apparently, uh, Hadadezer had uh, conquered uh, whatever peoples were to the north and had put them under tribute. Well, after a while, they rebelled. And so he is up there uh, to the north by the Euphrates River, uh, trying to bring these folks back under his subjection when David apparently attacked from the south. And uh, the Arameans were not a big nation, so they couldn't really fight two wars on two fronts. And so David was able to be victorious. And we read in verse 4 that David then took from uh, Hadadezer 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also we read that David hamstrung all the chariot horses except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. Now, I have never seen a horse hamstrung. I don't really want to. Uh, but just to make sure I knew what that meant, I went online and uh, one uh, author said, David, when David hamstrung the chariot horses, it refers to cutting a tendon in the hoof or knee of the horse, which makes it impossible for the animal to be used again in war. Now, that's kind of interesting. Why did he kill all these horses? Why did he just take all these chariots? He probably destroyed the other chariots, by the way, too. Why did he do that? Why didn't he just, t- you know, back then a chariot was like a tank today. It was a real asset if you're going to go against an enemy. But see, David was a man of God. Not a perfect man, but he was a man of God. You remember how that God forbid the kings of Israel from from multiplying to themselves wives, gold, or horses and chariots. Because God knew that man would have a tendency, his people would have a tendency to put their faith in their money or their military power. Uh, to give them victory, instead of in the Lord himself. So David, of course, being a man of God, was very careful that he didn't violate that principle because he knew God was with them. He knew God was giving them one victory after another. He didn't want to do anything that would cause the people to begin to turn their trust away from the Lord onto these chariots and horses and so on and so forth. In Psalm 20, verse 7, David writes this. He said, You know, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And then uh, Psalm 33, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither can it deliver any by its great strength. So we must keep our eyes on God, okay? Uh, We must look to him to be the one who gives us victory and the one who uh, provides our needs. And whatever it is that you are going through or 
facing, God has got to be the focus in everything. Because when you start getting your eyes off of God, you start getting your eyes onto whatever else that you think is going to help you out of this crisis, you're, you're going to find out it's going to be a, a bad thing. Verse 5. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. The Lord preserved David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem, also from Bata and from Baratai, the cities of Hadadezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. And so uh, Alan Redpath, great man of God, said about this, and I quote, he said, uh, Then there was Syria, the great heathen nation to the north, divided into two groups with capitals at Zobah and Damascus. They united together for protection, but found themselves helpless against the might of David. Well, Syria is going to find out once again they are no match for the God of Israel. That's coming. But verse 9, when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toy sent Joram, his son to King David, to greet him and bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been uh, at war with Toy. And uh, Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, articles of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the other nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Uh, so this king, Toy, having seen the awesome power of Israel's army and David's remarkable military success, uh, this king, who was a king of an Aramean city-state named Hamath, decides to capitulate to David without a struggle. Uh, he came to David through his son and said, David, basically, this is how it went. David, and, and I really believe this is what they were thinking. Look, not every city, and these were city-states, uh, autonomous uh, city-states in these areas, okay, that had their own king, their own armies, and so on. Not every one of these city-states wanted to fight with David. There's a lot of these people that realize this guy, his reign is almost supernatural. And the way he, this is the guy that beat that nine and a half foot Philistine giant when he was 17 years old. This guy, something about this guy. I mean, God is with him. And I think a lot of the surrounding nations understood that and simply just submitted, all right, surrendered. And, and David didn't hurt them. The goal was to bring these nations under his subjection, David was a good king. If you were under his subjection, even as a foreign power, he took care of you. He opened up lines of trade. There was They prospered as well as Israel. It wasn't a bad deal. Okay, You had an alliance you were a part of now, the alliance of God's people Israel. And so as one author said, and I, and I quote, he said, not every pagan nation surrounding Israel was hostile to Israel or their God. David did not treat them as if they, were, if they weren't hostile. David didn't treat them as if they were hostile. He said, we make a mistake if we treat every unbeliever as an openly hostile enemy of the Lord, end quote. That's a good principle, okay? David only fought against those who wanted to fight against him. If a, if a, if a city or a nation said, look, 
wow, uh, you are a great king, and your God is really with you. We bow to you, David. We, we surrender. We want to come under your subjection. And, and David treated them like friends, and they prospered under his leadership as well. And it says here in verses 11 and 12 that David took the spoil of all these uh, military conquests. He, uh, he stored it up with gold and silver and bronze. He kept in a treasury. Why? Because God told David, David, you can't build me a house. You can't build me a temple. David wanted to. We've studied that. But God said to David, David, you're a man of war. You've shed too much blood. The man who builds my house has to be a man of peace. Therefore, you can't do it, but your son Solomon, he will build me a house. David said, fine, Lord. If I can't do it personally, I'm going to spend the rest of my life financing it. So David started conquering all these people and keeping all the spoil in a place to give to Solomon when he became king to use in the building of the uh, temple, which by today's standards would be many billions of dollars in uh, wealth. I mean, incredible thing and all. Well, then we read in verses 13 and 14 how David took on the Edomites. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. He also put garrisons in Edom. And throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Now, guys, there's an, a, a, an apparent discrepancy here, and that we read in 2 Samuel 8 that David killed 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. But in 1 Chronicles 18.12, the parallel passage, it says that Abishai, one of David's commanding officers, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And um, one scholar shed light on this by saying this. Uh, it is true that in some Hebrew, Hebrew manuscripts, as well as in the ancient lexicon, uh, the, not the lexicon, I'm sorry, uh, Septuagint and the Syriac versions, uh, Edomites is also found here in 2 Samuel 8. Not Syrians, but actually Edomites. Uh, he said this author, the fact that David put garrisons throughout all Edom and made all the Edomites become his servants, verse 14 tells us, uh, probably further supports the idea that the word Syrian in Second uh, Samuel 8 is a, uh, a copyist error, and it really was uh, the uh, Edomites, not the Syrians. Now, let me just say this uh, quickly. The Word of God is inspired in the original autographs. That's what the theologians say. What that means is when Moses physically penned the first five books of the Bible, or Daniel, or, you know, Samuel, or uh, in the New Testament, Paul or Matthew, when they wrote God's Word down on parchment or whatever they used, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and as such, uh, their writing was inerrant in the original autograph or manuscript. Then those manuscripts got copied, and copied hundreds if not thousands of times by different scribes. In the course of copying, they had the Jews had a very meticulous copying process very meticulous because they reverenced the word of god so highly so you had copyist errors reduced to hardly anything in fact from what i've been able to uh, to study the bible that you have in your laps this morning has only one half of one percent error from every other bible every other manuscript that we have and sometimes these aren't even errors they're just words changed the spelling of words changed over the years so that's a variant that's a, a difference Okay, which goes into the half of 1%. Bottom line is, you can trust the Bible in your laps as being the Word of God. 
If our God was big enough to speak the universe into existence and give us his word in the first place, believe me, he is able and did keep it pure down through the centuries. You have once in a while a little copyist error or a number that doesn't jive with another parallel passage. None of it, listen to me, none of it affects any doctrine at all. At all. Okay? But apparently what is going on here is that during Israel's campaign in the north, Judah must have come under attack by the Edomites in the south. And so David dispatches one of his commanding officers, Abishai, with a group or a detachment of soldiers to go and fight against them, to repel them. Now, during this battle, David's forces struck down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And when that happens, the Edomites are a pretty formidable group of people. And when David's guys, under his leadership, uh, attacked the Edomites and killed 18,000 in the Valley of Salt, well, you might say this put David's name on the map, okay? I mean, he was well-known, but now he almost comes into a almost like a, a mystical kind of a... Uh, uh, a famous kind of a thing. Where, where now it's not like you're just fighting a guy named David. You're fighting a guy whose God is with him. This guy never loses a battle. He, he never lost one battle his entire military campaign. He fought hundreds of, of battles. So the enemy is starting to get, to, starting to think, you know, you don't mess with David. Okay? You don't mess with him. In fact, uh, we know the reason for David's success at the end of verse 14. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went all right it was the lord we know that but uh, amazing now verses 15 to 18 give us the names of some of the guys in david's uh, cabinet if you want to study that and call your boys by these names that's fine just i'll let you wrestle with that but i want you to understand something once again david goes down in history as israel's listen greatest military king under david the kingdom gained more land than any other king. In it. They occupied more land, closer to what God promised Abraham when he first gave Abraham the promise of the land that they would occupy at one point. Uh, under David's military leadership, Israel conquered and occupied more land than any other time in their history. David took the nation to its zenith of military power. Solomon, who was a man of peace because David had done all the he had conquered everybody. So Solomon took the kingdom to its zenith economically. And they became the richest nation on the face of the earth under his leadership. But David, well, he's Israel's greatest military king, a mighty king who won every battle, conquered every enemy, and brought absolute peace to the kingdom. There would be none like him until a future king would someday come who the Bible calls the son of David. That's a messianic title. We know him, of course, as King Jesus. Now, it's interesting that the Old Testament is loaded with prophecies concerning the coming of this Messiah, this King. And many of them tell us that he would come as a man of peace, that he would be a king offering peace. In fact, he'd be called the Prince of Peace. Uh, let me read Zechariah 9.9 and Isaiah 9.6. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. But listen, he is just and having salvation, but he's lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. 
Now you have to understand something. Back in those days, if a king rode up to your city on a donkey, that was a good thing. Because it implied he was, all, he was coming to you in peace and wanted to make an alliance or, or a treaty with you. Okay, So if you saw a king, a rival king, riding up to your city, uh, and you saw him there with his army behind him, and he's on a donkey, that was a good thing. You, Okay, that's, that's good. If he came riding up to your city on a white horse with his army, not so good. That meant he came as a conquering king. Jesus Christ, and here's the thing, the Jewish people didn't understand that their king was going to come twice. So you had prophecies that talk about a king of peace coming lowly on a donkey, right? Uh, Isaiah 6, uh, 9, verse 6, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government, the kingdom, is going to be upon his shoulders. He's going to lead it all. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And yet you had other scriptures that talk about him coming as a conquering military king, uh, destroying his enemies, establishing a kingdom, and so on. It's like they didn't understand what was going to happen, really. We know that King Jesus would come twice. The first time, he would come in peace. He would come to Israel as their king of peace, the prince of peace, offering them to be a part of a kingdom that he would bring if they would receive him as Messiah. Of course, we know on Palm Sunday, the only time Jesus ever allowed himself to be worshipped as king. He comes riding up to the top of the Mount of Olives, uh, Luke 19, verses 41 to 45. You can read about this. And he, and he starts weeping because he sees the city of Jerusalem laid out before him. He starts weeping. He said, you know, if you had only known this day, the day that was made for your peace, this is the day. What, what day? Well, in Daniel chapter 9, God had prophesied that from the time the commandment went forth to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, came, would be, and I'm paraphrasing, 173,880 days. It would start when Nehemiah received the command from King Artaxerxes to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, start counting. It would, if he had 173,880 days to March 14, 445 B.C., the day Artaxerxes gave the command, it brings you out to April 6, 32 A.D., Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem presenting himself as their king, but he was rejected, right? That's why he wept over the city, because he knew that judgment was coming, because they refused him as their king. If they would have received him, he would have brought a kingdom of peace to the earth. However, even though he had come as a king in peace, he was rejected by the leadership of Israel. In fact, Isaiah 53, verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He hid, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. So Isaiah is prophesying about how that, when Messiah finally came, Israel would not receive him as their king. He would be rejected. Now we know, Palm Sunday, he presented himself, Four days later, on uh, the 14th of Nisan, Passover, he was crucified. Three days after that, he rose from the dead bodily. Forty days after that, he ascended back to his father. But before he left, he told his disciples, even before the cross, 
He said, I'm coming back again. I'm going away. And where I'm going, you can't come with me. You can't follow me. Not yet. I'll come back for you. That where I am, you, there you might be also. But I'm coming back. And I'm not going to come back quietly and secretly. I'm not going to tiptoe into some inner chamber somewhere. Because as lightning flashes across the dark sky from east to west, so will be the signs of my coming. I will light the sky up with my second coming glory and every eye will see me. He's coming again. But this time, Revelation 19 says, he ain't coming on no donkey. He's coming on a white horse to make war. He's coming as a conquering king to take vengeance upon his enemies. We read about this in the Old Testament. In Psalm 96, verse 13, I'm just going to give you a, a few of dozens. For he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Isaiah 11, verse 4, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Well, that was looking forward to a future day, a day, guys, we're still looking forward to. Because in, in Revelation 19, and you don't have to turn there, you can read it on your own. But in Revelation 19, John the Apostle, who was taken into the future and sees the vision of Jesus Christ returning to the earth, the very thing the prophets were all prophesying about, right? And John sees him riding this white horse. And with him are all these angels in the church, the, the saints of God, all right? And when they when we come through the clouds with the Lord, as he's coming to the earth to establish his kingdom, guess who is waiting for him in the valley of Megiddo? The Antichrist, false prophet, and all their forces. You see, the devil has so convinced the people of this world at that time that the Antichrist is God. The false prophet is, who knows what he is? He's like a God, all right? And together, if we follow these two, Nobody's going to ever be able to defeat us. They, they all know Jesus is coming. Satan knows the scriptures. And he knows, and he's communicated this to the Antichrist, false prophet, and all the people that follow uh, these guys, that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. Okay? So they know about when because, of course, they've read the book of Revelation. Okay? From the time the uh, uh, Antichrist sets up his image in the Holy of Holies, start counting, 1260 days later, the Messiah is going to return. Satan can do math, okay? So they're getting all their folks ready. We got a week left. Come on, you know, come to the Valley of Megiddo, right? And so here they are, the armies of the Antichrist. How deceived do you have to be to think you can go to war against God Almighty and win? But here they are, okay? I don't know what kind of weapons they have. I don't think it's going to be that far in the future. So they're out there in the Valley of Megiddo with their Apache helicopters and and, and tanks and, and surface-to-air missiles and whatever else they got going on. And here comes Jesus with his angels in his church breaking through the clouds on white horses. All right, guys, get ready. You know, you know lock and load, you know. It ain't happening. They don't get the fire shot one. The Lord, well, first of all, he takes the false prophet and the Antichrist, picks them up, 
tosses them in the lake of fire, hell, okay? And then Jesus speaks the word and vaporizes everybody. He va- the Bible uses very graphic, uh, the blood is splashed everywhere. Like when you put grapes into a wine press, and you start squeezing the grapes and the juice shoots out everywhere. Okay, I know we got to go to lunch soon. So, and of course, all these who are killed in this battle, who come against the Lord, who go to war with God, their souls are cast into Hades, where every other unbeliever, from the time the world began, their soul is there, okay? And you can read about this, Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. At one point, they're resurrected after the millennial kingdom, and they have to stand before Jesus and give an account, but every one of them is going into the lake of fire. Uh, They're guilty. And so the Lord pronounces upon each one according to the evil of their lives, their degree of punishment in hell, and they get cast into the lake of fire. Now, let me bring this, okay, to where we want to close, okay? I say all of this to say this. Many people today have a problem believing in a God who judges and destroys rebels. Those people that are at war with him because, listen, they do not want to bow the knee to Christ's authority. They don't want him being king over their life. And so they refuse to bow the knee, and they live in an absolute rebellion against him, even though he has given them ample opportunity to come and be saved and escape the judgment to come. But they refuse. Now, a lot of people, when they read the Bible, Revelation, and so on, and they read about how the Lord destroys his enemies and how he judges them eternally, they're going to have a real problem with that. They have a real problem with that. Because they don't believe that that is the right thing to do. That if God's a God of love, he shouldn't, he shouldn't do that. In fact, some of them just try to say the Bible is an error. Or the Bible really isn't teaching that. Look, the Bible is clear. Okay, uh, That judgment awaits the wicked. And that the second coming of Christ is the occasion for a worldwide judgment unparalleled in Scripture since the days of Noah's flood. We talk, read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Since it is a righteous thing that God to, for God to repay uh, with tribulation those who trouble you. These folks are being persecuted for their faith. And Paul is saying, look, the day is coming. God is going to trouble them. They're troubling you right now, persecuting you. The Lord's going to trouble them someday. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, there are so many scriptures. In fact, guys, Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven or love because he didn't want anybody to go there. He was always warning people about hell. I know people say, well, I just don't believe that. I believe heaven's real. I don't believe hell's real. Or if it's real, it's not eternal. Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus said, Jesus, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word everlasting and eternal are the same Greek word, same word in the Greek. Jesus is telling us that even as heaven is eternal, listen, so is hell. And yet when asked, 76% of people in America said they believe in heaven, but only 6% say they believe in hell. Folks, that's wishful thinking, okay? That's not biblical doctrine, that's wishful thinking. 
In fact, in a survey I just read a couple of days ago, okay, taken among, listen, not unbelievers, but among professing Christians, the, service, the survey was taken. Only 40% of professing Christians believe that there is a literal place called hell where God has to send people or will send people for eternity who refuse to trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And guess what? Since less and less people believe in hell, and in fact, if asked about it, they will tell you that, well, preaching about hell makes me very uncomfortable. Some even say it makes me angry, okay? I'm tired of all this hell, fire, and damnation preaching. I come to church to be, I want a positive message, you know? Okay, well, how about this? You're positively going to hell if you reject Christ, okay? I mean, what can I tell you? But because pastors, for the most part, look, this pulpit is a place where God's truth is to be given, the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help us, God. We pastors have been given a responsibility by God to teach the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that people like about God's character, His love and His mercy and His grace. What about His righteousness, His holiness, and His justice? And when pastors don't preach the whole counsel of God, because guess what? They don't want to make people uncomfortable. They don't want to drive people out of the church because they want to fill the seats. Therefore, they will are tickling ears today, telling people what they want to hear. When that happens, which it has in our society today, guess what? The result is that almost everybody today in our country views God as a benevolent, gray-haired, grandfatherly old gentleman who is just too kind and loving to ever send anyone to a horrible place like hell. Consequently, guys, we now live in a society where there is no fear of God. Where there's no fear of God. In other words, no fear of coming judgment, no fear that people will have to stand before the God of the universe someday and give an account for the way they live their lives on the earth. Solomon said in the book of Proverbs that when people have no fear of the Lord, they don't hate evil. And when they don't hate evil, the result is lawlessness, or in other words, a blatant disrespect and disregard for the laws of the commandments of God. And when people live lawless lives, God promises them, I will have to judge them. Now, that's not what I want to do. As God said to the prophet Ezekiel when he sent them, when he sent him to the nation of Israel to preach about repentance. What did God say through Ezekiel? He said, please turn. Turn from your sin. Please turn. I mean, why will you die? I, I don't get any pleasure out of the death of the wicked. I, I get no pleasure, God says, out of sending people to hell. God doesn't want to send people to hell. He's almost begging us to get right with him. So he doesn't have to judge people. This is also repeated in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2, Paul said, It is good and acceptable in the, in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Peter said it in 2 Peter 3, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some people count slackness. Just because God's judgment hasn't come already doesn't mean he's not, it's not going to come. But God is patient and long-suffering, okay, Peter said. He wants everyone to have time to come to repentance. And of course, the one verse you all know, John 3, 16, For God so loved the people of this world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in Jesus would not have to spend eternity in hell but would have everlasting life. So once again, while it's true that our God is a loving, merciful, and gracious God who doesn't want to send anyone to hell, listen to me. 
He's also a righteous and holy and just God who has to punish sin. Otherwise, he would not be the righteous judge of all the earth. Genesis 18, verse 25 says he is. The problem today is that we have become so jaded by all the immorality and godlessness going on around us that, look, sin doesn't seem like a big deal to people anymore. And because of it, and here's where they make a fatal mistake, because they no longer think sin is a big deal anymore, guess what? They feel that God doesn't think it's a big deal anymore either. Okay, maybe murder and rape, okay, but certainly not lying or coveting or, or even fornication or adultery. We are a nation that has allowed itself to become deceived by the enemy. Everyone's doing it. I mean, come on, could it be really wrong if everyone's doing it? Is that your argument? Tell that to the Lord when you stand before him. Lord, everyone was doing it. I just figured if everyone's doing it, it'd be okay if I did it. God says, uh, no, you didn't read my word, did you? Well, yeah, but I didn't really take it seriously. Well, you know, that was, your, that was your mistake. Let me just say this, we're done. Nobody goes to hell by chance. They only go to hell by choice. God is offering you eternal life. All you have to do is reach out and receive it by faith and say, thank you. It's yours. Of course, eternal life means I don't go to hell for eternity. I have a place reserved for me in heaven for, forever. And this is all God is saying. Turn from your sin. Bow the knee to my son. Make him your king and your Lord. And I will give you eternal life. Now look, we're done for the fourth time I think I said that. <laughs> Remember we talked about Israel. Not every city-state around Jerusalem was openly hostile to David and to Israel. A lot of people, when they saw how God was working in David's life and how God was blessing Israel, their enemies couldn't stand before them. And they prospered exceedingly under David's leadership, knowing that David worshipped the God of Israel. Many of these these individuals in these city-states willingly bowed the knee to David and made him their king. And David did not treat them with hostility. He treated them with love. They were part of the family now. And as such, whatever he could do to protect and bless them, he did. Guys, that's how it is. I mean, you, you might have lived all your life as an enemy of God. And there's a lot of people who are hurt because God allowed a loved one to die or, or God allowed them to grow up in a horrible situation where their father abused them uh, almost on a nightly basis and they blame God for that and they grew up defiant and rebellious against God because they were hurting and, and lashing out at God by sinning because I can't hurt God unless I just live a life that's completely against all that he's commanded. But eventually God began to soften. God began to work. They began to realize it wasn't God's fault that their father did horrible things to them. It wasn't God's fault that a loved one died uh, young and was taken from them. And at one point, this rebel decided they were fighting against the only one who really did love them. And so somewhere, in the privacy of their own bedroom or somewhere, they knelt down. And they said to Jesus, I want you to be my king. I submit my life right now to your authority. I'm tired of running my own life. I want you to take control. 
And at that instant, they entered into a covenant with the king of kings. No longer the enemies of God. Now the child, a child of God. A part of the family. And this is what God is offering to the people of this world. Now next week, because next week's message dovetails into this, and that's why I wanted to combine chapters 8 and 9. And you have to come back uh, because there is so much there that God is teaching us about his mercy and grace. You want, you want to talk, we talked about the judgment of God today. How about we talk a little bit about God's love and mercy and grace next time? Let's balance it out, okay? There is so much there to be encouraged by. Um, come on back and let's, God is willing, let's study 2 Samuel 9 next time. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. And we thank you, Lord, that you invite rebels and those who are at war with you to come and surrender and make Jesus their king. And when they do, they go from children of wrath to children of God. And Lord, we just pray for everyone in this room who hasn't made that commitment to you or everyone who will listen to this teaching on, on the radio or online that they would realize you're not the enemy. You're the only one who really does love them. That they would bow the knee and receive Jesus Christ into their heart as Lord and Savior. That Lord, you will take them into the family Watch over, protect, and provide for them, Lord, as only a father can. And we ask you, Lord, to continue to bless now this study as we look at next week and how this conquering king, the one who destroyed his enemies, was so kind and loving to those who made a covenant with him. Lord, we thank you. We ask you to bless now all our studies in your word, and we just thank you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.